It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day, listeners, and welcome once again to the Two Jacks, uh, where we follow matters in Australian politics and go around the world and check them out there too. And joining me as per usual is Hong Kong Jack, all the way in Hong Kong. G'day, mate. How are you? Uh, excellent. Thank you, man. Uh, and what's going on in Hong Kong around about this time of year, gearing up for uh, Chinese New Year, I gather? That's right. Um, they're starting to, I think, next end of this week, start of next week, the decorations will start to appear for Chinese New Year, Year of the Dragon. Uh, and how many public holidays come with the Chinese New Year, Jack? Oh, well, it goes through till about June, I think. You know, <laughs> it's it uh, it coincides. I, I, I generally remember the Chinese New Year. It doesn't work off the Gregorian calendar, um, but it tends to coincide with our Australia Day, Jack. Or yeah, the- <laughs> more or less. It's February ten this year. Is uh, China the, the, the okay. turn of the new year? A little bit uh, later than last. A little year. bit later. Yes. Because, yeah, last year uh, I think it was pretty much on Australia Day, but yes, a little bit later this year. Uh, elements of uh, uh, the Chinese elements of my extended family uh, have uh, a, a Chinese uh, a New Year celebrations, um, and uh, we haven't uh, been. Uh, uh, invited to the home yet, so it's obviously happening in in February, um, yeah. but that takes us to Australia Day, Jack, January twenty sixth. Uh, it has been a um, a tortured debate for many many years now. I'd simply ask you: Do you think it's gone off the rails as it uh, as as the stupidity uh, reached uh, its zenith? Uh, it, it will struggle to outdo this year. Yes, I think any subsequent year will be be very difficult to uh, to, uh, to 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 equal uh, this year so far. Of course, this year we've had uh, one of our most senior politicians in this country, Peter Dutton, leader of the opposition, calling for a boycott on Woolworths, Jack, uh, who employ around two hundred thousand Australians, biggest private employer of uh, of Australians in the country. Um, it's it's not his best work, is it? Uh, well, I'm not a I'm not a fan of these kind of boycotts. Whoever's doing them. Well, it's interesting that uh, Scott Morrison, uh, the much benighted uh, former prime minister, actually sought uh, to uh, uh, legislate against what are known as secondary boycotts, and what Peter Dutton was trying. On there was a secondary boycott, um, and uh, of course uh, he mu- he would have been told uh, in no uncertain terms by the lawyers that it was impossible because it is um, uh, a guarantee of free speech, uh, 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 political speech in this country, and therefore is protected under the constitution as interpreted by the High Court. Yeah, um, and no one quite knows how that will play out in the long term. Um, the the High Court kind of invented. Really, a, a right. It, it does. There's no black letter reference no. to it, is it? Um, no. But um, but but that it, is it, the it's, precedent it's an, set. 
It's an implied freedom of speech. Free That's speech, right. Though, that That's exactly right. Um, but yes, here we had one prime minister or one leader of the Liberal Party uh, wanting to terminate secondary boycotts, and then the current leader of the Liberal Party um, decides to promote one. It sort of tells us where the Liberal Party is going, Jack. Um, that it that it it sees some benefit from seeking what we might call new votes. Um, uh, in the outer suburbs, the blue-collar vote, for want of a better term? Uh, yeah, has, there, has there been any polling on whether people like the Strata? Uh, I did notice that the IPA put out a poll saying I think 63% supported uh, uh, the January 26th celebration of Australia Day. I would probably want to have a look at the methodology there, Jack, it's yeah, a difficult is- question to ask in a poll because you have to, because it can be interpreted as saying, "Would you like to have one less public holiday?" Unless you get the, the question absolutely right, um, <clears throat> and so if you're going to ask people if they would like one less public holiday every year, you're going to get a fairly strict no response, aren't you? Uh, you are, um, and the IPA doing it. There's a an element of Mandy Rastavis about that. Well, they would say that <laughs> a little they? bit of push polling. Yeah, are you um, sure about your answer? Yeah, I, I certainly think we need to have an Australia Day. I'm not um, uh, terribly wedded to any particular date. Um, uh, the, the 26th of January is, is really a kind of a Sydney celebration. Well, it's, yeah, it's happy birthday to Sydney, isn't it? Yeah, it is, really. Um, but I, I think it's important that um, that we do have a, an Australia Day. Australia mm. and the Swiss um, are pretty much tied for the highest proportion of foreign-born um, people living in their country, um, uh, well ahead of the OECD average, right? Um, and Australia's done that very, very successfully. And um, I can tell you that if you talk to migrants, they want to have an Australia Day. They want to have some sort of sense that this is why we're here. They know why they came, mm. um, and, and they don't go back very often. Um, uh, so no. that's kind of that's kind the of important. go home often whining about the weather. It's too hot. It's too humid. Yeah. <laughs> Not in big numbers, but they do go home. That's <laughs> they true. They do go back and have a whinge while they do it. But you're right. Um, uh, we need to have a, a fixed date where we can celebrate national identity, whatever that might be, whether we, we are, of course, a, a very successful land of migrants, nation of migrants. Yeah. Um, and and, and, from, and from, my, from my perspective, celebrating, uh, there's a lot to celebrate and a lot to like about British colonialism. Not everything's good about it, but there was a lot to like about it. We, Australia's much better off that it was the Brits than the French or the Portuguese or the Dutch um, uh, who colonised uh, Australia. Yeah, I guess uh, if we look at uh, the history of exploration in the South Pacific, it could have been could have gone one way or the other. Um, uh, but uh, well, look, we do need. I, I fully understand that we do need to have. Uh, a, a, a national day of celebration. Pretty much every country has one. The difficulty we have is our, our idiot forefathers, Jack, our constitutional forefathers, um, brought in the Constitution uh, on the 1st of January uh, 1901, and uh, that is the day of nationhood in Australia, and we can't have that because it's the 1st of January, it's a public holiday anyway. 
Well, and people will be too seedy to go to the celebrations. <laughs> exactly right. So we can't do that one. I mean, look, it must be said that uh, January 26th public holiday has only been in, I think, since 1994. So we're not talking about changing centuries-old tradition here. Uh, well, the, the, the public holiday being on the 26th rather than the nearest Monday um, yeah. uh, dates to 1994. Yeah, but then, then we can go back further into history and see that Australia Day was celebrated in July, hmm. uh, in April, uh, often relating to uh, uh, significant uh, uh, events around Australians in wartime. Um, <coughs> so, look, let's get back to the Woolworths boycott, Jack. Uh, I noticed uh, the reject shop was touting for business uh, and saying, look, uh, Woolworths may have forsaken you, but we have this. And it was the most appalling amount of tat that you could possibly, could possibly realise in a uh, <clears throat> in a series of shelves that, that were about uh, a, metre, a metre wide and about three metres high. Um, I, you know, the, the, the idea, I'm not a huge fan of, of either of the major supermarkets, of course, I don't think too many Australians are, but the idea that they should be stocking things that don't sell um, uh, by weight of public opinion is bizarre to me. And for that to be implemented by um, the leader of a party that extols the virtues of the free market, strange, strange stuff. Of course, we've had two vandalisms, um, both in uh, Brisbane, um, uh, one person arrested uh, in regard to one in Tenerife, I believe, uh, and another and another one uh, vandalised, graffitied um, uh, in the Brisbane area. Um, again, the culture war stuff, I think our political leadership need to understand that there's a fair amount of heat out in the community and there's no real need to, uh, to, uh, to uh, stoke it up. Oh, I just thought it was a bit of rank political opportunism because he saw that um, uh, Labor was a bit conflicted on this um, and he thinks it's a majority position and I'm inclined to agree with him. It probably is a majority position to leave the date where it is um, and he thought he could take some, take some political advantage of that. Yeah, it hasn't quite panned out that way. I, I would uh, think uh, he would have liked to have had that time over again, made the point without uh, the boycott, Jack. Yeah, yeah per perhaps, uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, over to the ABC, Jack, uh, uh, and uh, there is a scandal looming there. Uh, a, a journalist at the ABC, Antoinette Latouf, was let go, was given the Don't Come Monday. Um, by the ABC uh, following some pro-Hamas tweets or pro-Palestinian tweets. How would you describe them firstly, Jack? Uh, they were pro-Hamas in my view. Um, I, I can just add, um, we're recording this on Thursday. Was it Thursday the 18th? Um, yes, indeed. Uh, there is a conciliation uh, conference going on at the Fair Work Commission as we speak. Yes, uh, I think a, a, perhaps an acquaintance of yours rather than a mate, Josh Bernstein, represents Antoinette Latouf in in, yes. uh, in regard to a, um, a, what is it, a, a wrongful uh, dismissal yeah. action. And um, what struck me about this is not, um, not, not, not what she tweeted, she's entitled to tweet whatever she likes. And I, I think ABC have a, a social media uh, policy in place. It'll be some tortured thing that runs about five volumes. Um, <coughs> almost, almost everyone who signs an employment contract in Australia these days 
will have it will have some kind of contract like some, some kind of clause in the contract like this. Yeah, um, uh, not just journalists. I, I mean, no, in, in yeah, I understand, but I'm not I'm not comfortable about any of that to be honest. Um, uh, you could you could make the point that you must not do anything that uh, could cause uh, embarrassment or loss of reputation to the organisation, but if you're making sort of general points about what's going on and around the world, I, I fail to see how that would be it. But the the the, the, the striking thing about this was. And is that uh, Latouf seems to have been uh, let go, uh, dismissed, on the basis of a fairly small lobby group, Jack, um, led by the Australian Jewish, Asso- Jewish Association. And yeah, that- so it would seem. I've got no problem with um, uh, Jewish groups, Muslim groups, any other groups lobbying people like the ABC, lobbying institutions. Yeah, neither have I. Um, and, and, and the institutions... Uh, uh, ought to be able to say, look, yeah, thanks for your input, but we're taking no notice of it. Exactly right. Uh, I I don't think there's a media organisation outside the ABC that would be so... um, uh, Craven. Yeah, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. What you do is you say, look, we have a... This is how a media organisation would respond to this. and say, look, we have a broad range of opinions within this organisation. We do not seek to control or or, or contrive uh, opinions from, from individuals, regardless of who they work, or whether they work in news or whether they work in administration or in, in television or radio production. Um <coughs> And and we are comfortable with those views being expressed as part of a whole spectrum of, of views, and that's kind of the end. That's kind of the end of the matter. Well, so it, it's very that's, disturbing that's, to see to see a, an organisation like the ABC kowtow to what is just a little bit of pressure. That's the weakness in the ABC's position is that they haven't been encouraging of a broad range of views and diversity of opinion for decades. Ed Husick weighed into this, Jack, and he said, uh, I'm not sure what his ministerial responsibility. Help me out there, please. What's Ed, what's Ed up to? Uh, ooh, He's got a ministry. Um, uh, yeah, something completely something completely different to this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nicely, nicely moved on. We, we could Google that, but we're not going to. Um, um, he said, if people express their views, if it's peaceful and conforms to what we think is acceptable in a democratic country, they shouldn't feel like their jobs are on the line. It's, it doesn't. There's not a whole lot wrong with that sentence, is there? Except the bit about who decides what views are acceptable. Well, that's the tortured bit, isn't it? You know, mm. I, I would prefer that sentence to read um, a, a, an expression of a, a, a of an opinion freely held. Yeah, um, um, I, I don't think people should be getting the sack. I, look, um, so far as Anna, Antoinette Latouf goes, I didn't agree with what she tweeted. Um, but it's not a sacking offence. You know, <laughs> even if I think she's wrong, being wrong is not a sacking offence. Um, you know, being offensive is not a sacking offence, Jack. No, it no, shouldn't. No. But Israel Folau shouldn't have been sacked for the same reason. It's not a sacking offence to be wrong. Yeah, I, I, slightly different thing. But look, let's get back to Latouf. Slightly different thing, only because he had these 
meetings with with uh, the ARU or Rugby Australia now, and well, well, and, well, and well, he said he was going to do things, and he didn't. And yeah, anyway, anyway, let's and, not let's and, not get and, bogged and, down. And that's the that's the allegation against Latouf that she was given instructions or she was told not to do this, and she did. Even under those circumstances, I don't think it's a sacking offence. What happens now, if it goes? And we're just speculating now. What happens if it goes to the Fair Work Commission, Jack? Uh, who knows? <laughs> Come on, you're well, a man a of strong a, opinions. Um, she'd she'd win. She'd win by the length of the straight. Is my opinion. Uh, Depends on the contractual arrangements. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does, um, and it's a bit of a, a bit of a lottery there, in my view. All right, no, that's a fair answer. All right, we've been talking about housing as being one of the great, uh, causing one of the great divides, political divides, social divides in this country. Um, uh, and uh, these problems are existing around the world, the Western world, Jack. They are. Um, I start, this caught my eye because it had some figures for uh, the UK um, uh, and their uh, housing affordability level is the kind of the worst it's been um, uh, since the, um, uh, the, the turn of the last century. What, 20th, 21st? 21st. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's 1900. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So, so, so you sometimes get a little bit, show your age a little bit there, mate. We've had a couple of centuries uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's it, there is this great divide occurring in the UK too and I would note that it's pretty much a, a European-wide um, uh, malaise as well, uh, Germany as well, it's savage uh, housing and rental crisis going on there. There is um, um, and... Um, Politically speaking, whoever whoever finds a solution to this uh, first is going to be a big winner. Well, I'll I, I just throw, the, throw this in, Jack, that, that I think uh, the cycle of life is going to uh, is going to sort some of this out at, at, at least. Um, there is a lot more going on here, and, and, and what has begun to happen is a massive shift of wealth from what we might call boomers. To millennials, when the family home is passed on down the generations after the death of said boomers, or those who I think they, I think the what pre uh, uh, the, the, the pre boomer model is the uh, the uh, the greatest generation, isn't it? Um, um, but that wealth is starting to shift, and it is it is it is essentially the handing of the family home in the, in, on the occasion of death to the children. The children now in their getting into their forties, fifties, sometimes into their sixties, uh, who are sitting on who'll be who'll be sitting on sort of you know in Sydney real estate prices and a Melbourne real estate prices, looking at sort of multi million dollar gifts. Yeah, uh, and and that's that, that's been a designed in problem in Australia because all the the tax system encourages people to put their wealth in the family home. Yeah, and bequests. Uh, are not taxable, uh, although the Greens would like it to be so, Jack. Um, yeah. It's an interesting uh, policy, isn't it? It's considered political death for uh, for the major parties to even uh, even uh, contemplate it as a silent thought bubble at four o'clock in the morning when it's just them lying in bed. Um, the, uh, the states used to um, have death duties in Australia uh, and Joe Bielke-Peterson, the former... Queensland Premier really ended this because he saw 
an opportunity for Queensland in saying that there will be no death duties in Queensland, and that was to encourage retirees to move there, sell their property in Sydney, Melbourne, buy a property in um, a bigger property, say, in Queensland. Yeah, on the Goldie or further up in Queensland, um, and and therefore be able to leave that property to their families without paying death duties. When there's a the, the old fashioned view of this is um, no one can better afford to pay taxes than the dead. Um, uh, um, so they were considered, you know, um, this is kind of considered well, good, good well, sound there, tax there, policy. There are death duties, death taxes in and inheritance taxes in place in in the UK, for example. Yeah, um, and. Um, uh, it was the Bjorki-Peterson move um, did cause a lot of people to retire to Queensland, um, uh, to the Goldie, as you say. Um, and, and, and ended it, in politically uh, and ended the the National Party stranglehold on the state yeah, because they it, came it, up from down south with all these crazy ideas, Jack. They did. Um, but they, they, they became a kind of a competitive thing. Then The other states didn't want to lose out to that, so yeah. they got rid of their death duties as well. Yeah, so uh, no death duties exist in this country. There are capital gains taxes and things like that. Uh, should it's, the family Australia, Australia is relatively unusual in that, I can tell. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, for example, I think, you know, if you inherited a house, um, uh, inherited a house and you sold it within, I think, a two-year period, there's no capital gains tax payable on it. That's correct. Well, that's my recollection. Um, yes. And this takes us now to the next topic uh, of conversation, Jack, and that is Israel and Gaza and an expanding conflict uh, that has now dragged uh, the Houthi rebels um, uh, being set upon by the, uh, the Brits and the Americans um, uh, in, in and around Yemen, Jack. So there is an escal- There is a sort of escalating nature to this conflict. Uh, with Australian assistance, the Americans keep, in, keep Well, it's assisting. really just moral, I think, at this stage. Oh, I think they sent a, I think they sent a few troops over there to uh, sit in the command centre. <clears throat> yes, well, Joe yeah. Biden has said that uh, Australia is a, a supporter of this action. Is there a danger of, of, of serious escalation here? I mean, the two warring sides in the Middle East, excluding Israel, the two warring sides are the Saudis and the Iranians. Jack? Uh, yes, that's a fair representation. So is there a real concern now that the Houthi rebels, who are um, backed and sponsored by um, uh, the Iranians, who were, in fact, you know, a minor little group um, before the conflict in Yemen started, but have now been sort of, you know, become a sort of proxy army for the Iranians. Um, uh, is there is there a chance that this could escalate to what uh, many of us sort of think is the sort of the the the, uh, the end game in the Middle East, uh, the conflict between uh, Shia and uh, and Sunni uh, between Saudi the Saudis and Iran. Um. There's always a risk of that, but I would say my view of it is that I don't think the West has any choice but to um, do what it can to take out the Houthi um, uh, um, strike capacity because 
so much of the world's trade goes through the Red Sea. Yeah. And I don't think you can allow um, uh, uh, a bunch of terrorists to, um, uh, to pick and choose which ships get through and which don't. And uh, there have been a number of successful strikes on tankers. Uh, there have been a number of reprisal strikes on the Houthi rebels. Um, they are clearly outgunned and and uh, and overwhelmed in a in a sort of standard military fight. But these are not. I mean, this is essentially a guerrilla warfare tactic, isn't it? And difficult for overwhelming military force to do much about it. Yeah, um, I think they can do a hell of a lot about it. Um, uh, it, whether that will be enough, I don't know. But I don't think there is much um, strategic Well, there are strikes choice. now in Yemen. Uh, yeah. There have been strikes now from, from the, so, the, social, the so-called coalition into Yemen. Um, and, yes, there is that, there is that risk, uh, isn't there, of, a, of an escalation. Um, what we have seen, as you pointed out um, on uh, numerous occasions, is a broad... Um, uh, well, uh, no broad support from the Arab world for uh, the Palestinians in Gaza and certainly no broad support for Hamas, no support for the reconstruction of, of uh, Gaza because they figure it'll just be blown up again in 10 years' time when there's further outrages committed by the Houthis. Uh, sorry, by, the, uh, by, by, uh, Hamas. by Hamas. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the Arab world wants to be rid of Hamas as much as Israel does. Yeah, uh, you can see that. I mean, the Saudi Arabian Secretary of State. I mean, look, let's 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 be honest. The Saudis are not good global citizens. But uh, <clears throat> and the Saudi Arabian Secretary of State said, "We will recognise Israel under a full normalisation." Um, so that's fairly fairly clear. Um, Fairly clear where their where their allegiances lie. Um, I did a bit of um, I did a little uh, bit me, of work. Meanwhile, the Egyptians have rebuilt their their border crossing at Rafa, um, uh, and uh, it's impressive. I, I, don't, I don't think like Donald Trump would like it. Uh, you've never seen so much razor wire. Um, they have no intention of, of allowing um, uh, the Gazans to go into Egypt. Yeah, um, uh, I did look, and this is. I did look. There are various, as you would know, there are various metrics for determining um, how free societies are, Jack, uh, um, uh, whether they hold free and open and fair elections, whether they allow for a free press, um, uh, whether their political institutions tend to, demo- to, to democracy or whether they are sort of hybrid states that uh, introduce elements of totalitarianism with um, a bit of uh, democratic window dressing, and I, I, I took to uh, to uh, scan on that list. Uh, Israel exists uh, is listed as a, what's called a working democracy, like Australia, like the UK, like New Zealand, like a, like uh, the US, uh, like Uruguay, which is considered oddly in these metrics, as the most democratic state in, um, in the Americas. Um, <clears throat> and then scrolling down, Jack, we get to there are about 215 nations in the world. Um, the North Koreans didn't get a mention. Um, but uh, uh, Gaza uh, was listed as an absolute autocracy. And I think um, a lot of the West just don't get this. A lot of people in the West don't get this, particularly... 
um, um, those on the left. Yeah, I'm not surprised about Uruguay, but um, there you go. Um, uh, well, Henry, Henry Lawson thought it was a terrific place. Yeah, the um, there are Utopia. there are a number of basic things that you need to to to, to fit it. You need a, a kind of freeish press, some kind of representative government, private property rights, uh, and the rule of law, um, and and then freedom of religion, etc. Freedom, of, you know, uh, if you got that, you're going to be a successful country. And if you haven't got most of those, you're not. Um, and, um, and 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 places like Gaza and Yemen um, uh, and Saudi Arabia, for that matter, um, uh, and Iran. don't have them. Hmm. I don't know if you said Iran, but Iran. Yeah, is, well, Iran would score score very poorly on those things. Ethno-religious autocracy. Um, it, it does. And um, um, look, it, it, it was interesting to me because I was looking at the, the world is facing. Well, the world is facing 60 elections this year. In fact, there have already been two run and one, uh, and the first was in Taiwan um, where um, um, uh, the sitting party has um, uh, lost a few seats and lost its majority, but uh, their presidential candidate got up. Uh, and then on the other side of that coin, uh, Bangladesh had its uh, legislative or general election, which was an absolute shambles with the ruling party um, um, uh, forcing uh, opposition, genuine opposition parties into holding boycotts um, and then getting 74% of the vote and uh, uh, and uh, driving a substantial majority in their legislature. Um, and, and this is... So when, when we talk about these 60 elections, we're not talking about democracy flourishing. We are, we are talking about a lot of window dressing. There are 26 um, of those 60 uh, elections are due in Africa, Jack, including South Africa, which is essentially a one-party state uh, and has been for a very long time. And uh, as we've suggested on this program previously, veering more and more into gangsterism and deep intrinsic systemic corruption. Um, uh, there is an election in Togo uh, uh, coming, and Togo holds the uh, holds the title of the most coups um, uh, since World War II, um, <coughs> um, or since since basically the reign of independence in the 1960s. Um, uh, the Russians, of course, are going to to the people, so to speak, uh, this year, as are the Belarusians, and we might remember how uh, badly that election went. What was clearly um, contrived. Um, of course, we've got the American election. We've got the Indian election, which is such a vast exercise. It's run over essentially a month. Um, uh, in, in, in very soon, uh, in fact, next month, we have an election in Indonesia where the favourite there has a particularly dark background with Kapasas in East Timor and in West Papua. Um, and... Um, uh, yes, so it's not a matter of a, a democracy flourishing just because you have an election. Uh, Bangladesh is a, is, a, is a very good case in point. The history of Bangladesh is that it's a winner-take-all system in, in this sense that the losing party in an election tends to get rounded up and, um, uh, and whacked in jail. Yeah. Um, um, uh, um, so um, that's the rule of law aspect is that, you know, that yes. they're missing. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was just amusingly uh, looked at uh, Azerbaijan also going to the polls this year. Uh, the president there has been in place for 20 years. Uh, his dad was president before him. His wife is vice president. Uh, uh, and um, uh, in uh, 2013, Jack, they had a presidential election and they released the results the day before the the, uh, the polling stations opened. Oops. So you, so you mean this is worse than the Bushes and the Clintons, is it? <laughs> it's, you, you tend not to get you tend not to get the results the day before a, a, a vote is cast. But yeah, that's what happened without any apparent embarrassment uh, for the Azerbaijan electoral uh, electoral officials. Um, uh, spite of spite of uh, uh, of genuine democratic elections, but a lot of very dodgy ones coming our way. Um, uh, getting back to Israel and anti-Semitism, Jack, <clears throat> um, what we talked about last week was how progressive Jews are going to view their non-Jewish progressive um, uh, co-travellers, political co-travellers, uh, after, uh, after the conflict in Gaza, Jack. Um, this really has given rise to an enormous amount of anti-Semitism around the world, uh, and well, and has come in in, in part uh, from, like I say, these sort of fellow ideological travellers. Well, firstly, we should just acknowledge that Western Jews, Jews in the Western world, trend very progressive. Yeah, for the most part, that's right. Um, you know, there are there are elements that are that are the conservative, but they're, they're relatively small. Um, it, it's a it's a very very progressive um, uh, uh, group, um, and it's very difficult for them at the moment because the people who they thought were their allies, um, or, or, or who with whom they shared values, um, they are quite at odds with now. I mean, there are the pro Palestinian uh, demonstrators the other day in London were um, uh, I forget, forget what, exactly what they were chanting, but it was a pro Houthi. Um, uh, um, nuts, um, and you kind nuts. of wonder about that. Um, this is this is a, this is a regime. What, 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 if it doesn't, these people tolerate- should, should spend a weekend with the Houthi rebels, Jack, and just see how uh, what their values are like. Um, and there's, it's arguable the Houthis tolerate slavery. Um, uh, that's how bad they are. Mm. Uh, but um, if it's a choice between the Israelis and the Houthis, they will take the side of the Houthis. And progressive Jews are finding this a very, very difficult thing to come to terms with, that the people who they thought that they stood shoulder to shoulder with um, uh, 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 are not being supported. Take South Africa, for example. South Africa is the country that has taken Israel to the High Court on apartheid. Right? It's a one-party state. The ANC rules South Africa. Yes, good um, point. Um, the ANC was chock full of progressive Jews pre um, uh, uh, um, the the new South Africa. Um, uh, they were, you know, um, absolutely central to the ANC uh, being the strength that it was. Um, and the, there is a level of betrayal involved in all of this because um, uh, Israeli Jews and Jews who have close contact with uh, Israel, and that's a lot of them, that, that, when I say close contact, it means they've got uh, children of their friends and family who are uh, in the IDF uh, who may well be in Gaza now. 
they see this as a 1940 moment, that they think that um, uh, the October 7 um, uh, massacre uh, means that they need surrender. They need Hamas to surrender. Um, uh, so they see that their progressive friends are completely at odds with all of this and it's, a, it's causing a big rift, personal rifts and a big rift politically as well. Mm. Um, oh, look, I would just add in regard to the relationship between South Africa and Israel, there is a deep, there is a long history there. And, and while most of the world um, uh, placed economic boycotts and military spending boycotts uh, 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 or the sale of military hardware um, um, uh, boycotts in place against apartheid South Africa, Israel never did, Jack. No, I know they didn't. It's a complicated issue, but um, at the same time as that was happening, there were there were Jews in, Jews heavily involved yeah. in the ANC. Um, but look, it's difficult. Um, one thing that's going to happen, I think, is that progressive Jews will have lost faith in a lot of progressive institutions and organisations that they will never that that faith won't come back. No, I, I can't see how it can be. Re- I, I can't see how things can simply just go back to normal once the Gaza conflict is over. I just can't see that. Well, uh, you, you've got a piece here, and I'm looking. He's a he's a he's a, he's a tech uh, who lives in California now, Jewish. His name is Munro. He said, "I would definitely say." We're the only historically oppressed religious or ethnic group that is treated this way by progressives consistently. Um, He says, it didn't surprise me too much that progressive friends would be very critical of Israel. I had known that going back to college. But what did surprise me was the level of attacks on Jews and the anti-Jewish memes and statements online that were sort of being smuggled in as pro-Palestinian. what I heard was just a lot of silence. I posted about it multiple times, and then when people did respond, if they weren't Jewish, it seemed just as often to be sort of putting me down rather than showing support, or if there was support, it was very qualified support. The sense I got was that they felt like, okay, well, maybe people shouldn't be attacking Jews, but, you know, it's probably exaggerated. And why are you putting yourself at the centre of things rather than Palestinians? Or maybe now you understand what Palestinians are going through. It was just sort of a sense of satisfaction, like we were being rightly punished for something, and that really shocked me hard. And what he's talking about there, of course, is the October 7 attacks um, by Hamas that led to the deaths of 1,200 Israelis uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the hostages being taken to, the, to around about 200 people. Um, and uh, what was essentially a slaughter of unarmed of, of unarmed uh, Israeli civilians, Jack. Munro mm. yeah. is a grandson of Holocaust survivors and has studied Holocaust history extensively. He said he's dismayed by this sort of progressive non-Jewish response. If people are okay with this now, they're going to be okay with anything, and I could just sort of see the whole future ahead of me, and it was going to be a really dark place. Um, he realised that left-wing activists, basically people who focus a lot on identities and standing up for marginalised identity groups, were indifferent to what happens to us at best and that this was actually quite a widespread sentiment. Yeah, yes. this, de- this stems from the oppressor-oppressed um, uh, nonsense that they carry on with. I mean, basically a lot of the, the, the pro-Palestinian uh, protests are anti-West protests. 
yes, there is a strong element there, Jack. Very strong element of that there too. Um, uh, it, it's it sort of staggered me. I mean, certainly I'm no stranger to anti-Semitism and through the conditional release program in particular, we've looked at the rise of it and it is particularly, it has been particularly acute, not just in its normal places, Jack, and that's, you know, the extreme right and extreme left. That's that's where we normally expect to see anti-Semitism in one shape or another, often in the extreme right. Um, just uh, explicit anti-Semitism. The left are a little bit shiftier, the hard left there. But what I've seen is sort of entering into mainstream libertarian and uh, conservative debate is more and more uh, anti-Semitism arising. And what we're also seeing now, uh, uh, not just post um, post October 7, but had been rising for years beforehand from that progressive uh, left is that sort of streak of anti-Semitism. If you dig away at it and for long enough, that you'll find it there. You know, this is, you know, uh, we could we could find an expression of that from the progressive left in the UK, the, the so-called Corbynites or the Corbynistas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very troubling. A, a good friend of mine, Jewish, I think I mentioned her in the program, not by name. I wouldn't do that because, you know, she, she basically feels very vulnerable at the moment. But all her fellow travellers, fellow ideological travellers who are non-Jewish uh, simply could not understand her anxiety about what's ha- what's happening. She has uh, uh, relatives in Gaza with the IDF. Uh, she had lost uh, a, an extended family member on October 7th. Um, uh, the people have got a lot to be concerned about and then they were basically casually dismissed uh, and in one case referred to as a genocide. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm having similar conversations uh, with, uh, with Jewish friends. Mm, all right. Um, I, I think you just got to stand up for this stuff every time. You just got to. It doesn't matter where it comes from, whether it's the left, the progressive left, the hard left, the right, the extreme right, the libertarian right. There is a there is there is anti-Semitism. It never goes away. Anti-Semitism never goes away. But I thought we had sort of hounded it to the extremes. But no, it's back, and it's probably worse than it's been since the nineteen forties, Jack. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a, a British Jewish organisation that monitors anti-Semitic attacks and they're up 500% uh, in the last two years. Um, uh, meanwhile, just looking at the, uh, uh, the military operation in Gaza, Jack, we're into the 100th day of that conflict now. October 7th, of course, was when it all started. Um, uh, there's no sign of the conflict letting up. There is fierce fighting in southern and central Gaza. Uh, and warnings from Hamas armed wings saying many Israeli hostages may have been killed. They did claim uh, yesterday, it been, been, has not been independently confirmed, but Hamas did claim that one of the Israelis, Israeli hostages was killed by, uh, by an Israeli airstrike yesterday, uh, unconfirmed. So a lot of propaganda stuff going on there. Um, we've got now nearly 24,000. Confirmed. I think that's a confirmed figure now. Twenty-four thousand Palestinians killed, um, and eighty-five uh, percent, uh, what we might call internally displaced. Jack, eighty-five percent, I should say, of the two point three million residents in Gaza have been uh, 
inter- in- internally displaced. It has had to have lead, left their homes um, but cannot leave Gaza. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't think I don't think the Israelis are going to stop. Um, uh, uh, if, if Hamas surrendered and gave back the hostages, yes, they would, but short of that, no, they won't. No, um, yeah, that's probably right. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, there, there is increasingly alarm. I did see that uh, Secretary of State, US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, um, uh, went to uh, Israel, I think last week, wasn't it, Jack? Uh, and there seems to be a message coming from the Biden administration that, you know, maybe maybe we need to be a little bit more targeted about uh, about what you're doing. Oh, and I think that yeah, that will be listened to, um, and they may well be more targeted. Um, the more targeted means losing more Israeli soldiers, and they're po- probably prepared to do that, but they will still be pursuing um, uh, 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 the, the virtual elimination of Hamas. And, and yeah. they'll be doing that with the support of their neighbours. And, uh, yes, well, look, when we look at the Jordanians in particular, uh, where there's a large Palestinian population, there's almost silence, isn't there, uh, Lebanon? Uh, Syria, to a degree, um, uh, the Iranians. Well, well, well the hist- history of that quiet. is that history of that is when the Palestinians moved into Jordan. When the when the Palestinian leadership moved into Jordan, they very nearly destroyed the, the country. Yeah, it's this sort of Black September we talk about, yeah. Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, um, uh, we are moving on now to the United States. There's a fair bit going on there when we talk about 60 elections, none bigger than the one in, than the one in November, uh, the presidential election and uh, uh, down ballot for the House and the Senate, uh, who will get majority control there. Um, but we'll kick it all off, Jack. Uh, there's a bit of a kerfuffle uh, in Fulton County, Georgia, where, of course, Trump has been indicted on RICO, uh, RICO uh, charges uh, in relation to um, electoral fraud. Um, and, and that is uh, Farney Willis, who's the uh, Attorney General, <coughs> um, uh, uh, the, the, the person that she chose uh, uh, to be the lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade. There's a bit of a uh, relationship between the two there, Jack. Um, it's it's even funnier than that. Um, uh, not only he, uh, was she having an affair with the bloke, she chose to be the special prosecutor to uh, pursue the RICO charges against uh, Donald Trump. Um, he was He's a divorce lawyer with zero experience in, uh, in handling uh, these sort of matters, handling RICO matters. Um, strange, isn't it? It's just uh, very strange. Yeah. Now, the, now the, the Trump legal team have filed, filed um, um, uh, objections in saying that she should be disqualified on that basis. I can't see any, any legal reason for that, um, uh, but it does make the whole thing look a little bit of a shambles, um, uh, it's fair to say. She popped up at a black church the other day to give sort of an apology, but not really. Um, uh, she played the race card, the religion card, the uh, the woman card, the whole thing, um, to try and say it should all go away. But it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing. And, and I suspect back of her mind, although she wouldn't admit this, is that RICO prosecutions in Georgia, Jack, are locks, right? It's almost impossible not to once you once you've been charged with a RICO offence in Georgia, whether you're the Donald Trump or whether you're running the Cat Protection Society, you're in big trouble. 
Yeah, uh, which is why what, what, we had this conversation before, which is why I don't approve of Rico things. Uh, oh, interesting. You're, you're it, pro-mafia. You're pro-mob. You yeah, know? I am. Bloody, uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I'm just trying to think of uh, the mobster who's uh, who died in jail. He'd be out and about if you had your way. Yeah, it probably. Um, uh, one interesting thing did turn up in the documents. Um, the Nathan Way, the special prosecutor, billed uh, the Fulton County for two conferences with uh, the White House lawyers. One um, in Fulton, and the other one he popped or popped. Popped across to uh, the White House and uh, and spent the day there. Um, this kind of puts a little bit of um, shade, shall we say, on the idea that this is an independent thing and uh, and that there is somehow some kind of fourth arm of government, which is the prosecution thing, that's independent of the executive. Well, let's get let's get into some conspiracy theories, Jack. Now. <laughs> You've you've put me into a uh, an article um, uh, in the National Review that says this is all planned. The Democrats have got a big plan, and that is to get Trump, uh, uh, the nominated candidate for the Republican Party. Well, well, to indict him into the nomination was the was, well, not, was the, was the, not. I mean, we we would argue about that all day, and we won't do that, but <clears throat> because. You know, some of these charges he should be facing. Definitely some of these charges he should be facing. The, the four-count indictment in Washington, D.C., I mean, it, 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 again, it looks like a lock to me, and his only way out would be to make this argument that presidents are immune from prosecution regardless of what they do and when they did it. Um, uh, anyway, uh, but we won't get stuck into that. This is... In, indict him, so cause him considerable embarrassment along the the uh, the primary, the course of the primaries, and into the presidential campaign proper. Uh, and, now, the, as I and then the run him against Joe, who's Joe's already beaten him. And Joe just said during the week, it's kind of funny all these Republican candidates in the primary trying to beat Donald Trump, and I'm still the only person who ever beat Donald Trump, and I'm looking forward to do it again for the good of this country. Well, Andrew McCarthy's theory is that the reason for the indictments was that um, that would cause a back a pro-Trump backlash, which it did. Every time they took some legal action against him, his polling numbers went up considerably. Um, uh, and then you would lock the Republicans into having him as the yep. candidate and then Joe Biden would beat him. Uh, first of all, I'm never much of a believer in conspiracy theories. Yeah, it, it's a bit tortured, isn't it? Yeah, uh, firstly, firstly, government doesn't work like that. There's, um, uh, yeah. there's no one who quite sits at the top and says, let's do four indictments, one after the other to do that. You yeah. can't do it. It doesn't quite work yeah. like that. Yeah, because right? we've got state and federal indictments. And, and, yeah. and so, you know, the, uh, the states and the feds operate independently. Yeah, well, yes and no. The, the Fulton County fellow did go across to the White House to get briefed by well, the he's allowed to go if he's invited or if he yeah, just wants yeah, to wander yeah, in and take some yeah. happy snaps, mate. And, that's, and, that, that's, and, not, that's not a sign of a conspiracy. And certainly um, the executive of the United States could have stopped all of those indictments if they wanted to, but they chose not to. That's okay. Um, th th this is a theory that... That, le that leans on, that rests on the idea that Joe Biden is going to be going well enough um, to beat Donald Trump. 
um, uh, in, in, a, in a runoff of the two most unpopular people in the country. Um, and that relies on there being enough never-Trumpers who will actually turn up to vote to make sure he doesn't win. And I think that's a huge gamble. A couple of things. <clears throat> Firstly, I saw Trump, and you could he- you could almost hear the uh, the hand slapping faces uh, in the Trump camp when he talked about he boasted basically that he was the one who uh, under God uh, uh, overturned Roe v Wade, uh, and that he was proud that he did. And you could just hear those in the Trump camp going, "Oh my God, the old man's done it again." Um, because that has proven to be a huge push in getting voters, independent voters and Democrat voters, particularly women, uh, uh, queuing up at the polls and casting their ballot and anyone but Trump. Um, so that was a really stupid moment from Trump uh, claiming for that. And I guarantee you that that remark will be shown over and over and over again. Uh, uh, in in political advertising to come. Um, uh, we do, Joe Biden has beaten him. He's one zip up. Um, and that, that is absolutely true. And the other thing that Biden has got going for him is that there's, there's very, very good jobs growth. The inflation rate is now 3% and likely to go down. Um, and, uh, and, and if elections... Uh, 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 run based on the economy, and they are, um, uh, uh, then um, most independent voters will look at the, the American economy and say, well, it's it's actually going all right. They don't seem to be at the moment. Not at the moment, um, but we have a long way to go. And, and I'd also sort of say that uh, there's a lot of polling um, <coughs> that... <the coughs> There's a lot of polling that uh, that indicates that Nikki Haley is actually in a head-to-head with Biden, miles ahead. Uh, RDS, Ron DeSantis, uh, uh, ahead of Biden. But when we put Biden in a head-to-head with Trump, well, either Biden leads by a little bit or Trump leads by a little bit. Yep, that's true. Um, uh, Haley does have a, a like a well well outside the margin of error lead over um, over Biden in the in the latest things. I don't think Biden will be the candidate. That's still my view. You still think he'd be tapped? Um, yeah, yeah. Look, it, it'll be a serious tap because he thinks he can win it. You know that 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 quote that I that I just read out before. Uh, he thinks he can beat Donald Trump, so it would be a serious tap um, on the show. <laughs> but I'd have to be a little bit more He's, forceful he- than a little. Little he, tap on the shoulder. His view of that doesn't seem to be widely held in the Democrat establishment. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So um, uh, I just want to look at, you know, where, where we're going to go. We obviously had the Iowa caucus uh, uh, earlier this week um, and um, it's a very strange system for a start. Trump... One uh, with fifty-one percent, and I notice a lot of the media were focusing on the issue of well, that's forty-nine percent who don't want to vote for him, um, and I don't, I'm not sure that that's the right conclusion to make around a primary because you're going to have others that uh, others that are going to attract support. Uh, Hallie came third, I believe, didn't she, with RDS a couple of yeah, points ahead? Yeah, line, line ball for second, a photo for second and third. Yeah, I think it was 21 to 19 um, with Trump, as I say, getting 51. 
Um, uh, you might want to explain to our listeners what the Iowa caucus is, Jack. Well, they gather in groups um, uh, and... Um, <laughs> I can see your brow furrowing here. It is the craziest system yeah. I've ever... It might have been fantastic in 1850, yeah. um, but it's not so great now. Yeah, uh, and it, it was in the middle of a, 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 even for Midwest standards, a fairly extreme weather event, mm. um, a big snowstorm, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, well, the Trumpers are, you know, the Margas are always going to come out. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the, it's, we're talking relatively small numbers of people. Yeah. Here. Uh, uh, look, it, 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 it amuses me that a, that a party that is, um, uh, the Republican Party that is uh, absolutely fixated on electoral fraud uh, would allow a, a, a caucus that, and I, and I saw some of the footage, you had a bloke with a brown paper bag walking around <laughs> a, a gymnasium collecting votes that way, Jack. Yeah, I'm sure it was all above board, but it just didn't look quite right. Yeah, that's how it works. I don't think that the Republicans get much vote in how, how it's done. It's, this is a strictly Iowa thing. Yeah, it um, is. No, all, all, all the states determine their own primary, you know, the, the rules of their own primaries, or, and this is not uh, an election. It is a caucus. We're off to New Hampshire after this, Jack. Where the numbers um, are even smaller. This is a tiny number of people. Yeah, but... Uh, Nikki Haley in the latest poll is showing about 31%, uh, Trump 43. Yeah. RDS 6. Yeah, no, uh, well, well, Nikki Haley and Trump have momentum, and momentum is really important in these things. Mm. Um, DeSantis, his campaign's kind of flatlining, really. He's, back, oh, he's backsliding. He's going backwards. Yeah. There's no yeah. doubt about that. I don't know that he ever had a real high, probably around about June or July of last year would have been his high when he when he first announced. Uh, before Trump was indicted, he was going fairly well. Oh, well, there you go. There's that Democrat conspiracy again, Jack. No, it's not, not, not a conspiracy at all. Um, I just thought they were stupid to indict him. I, well, I, I, I thought they were smarter than that because I think he was not going to be the nominee if um, if they hadn't have done that. I well, think they go. made him the nominee. So they want him to be the nominee, Jack. That's I'm the not conspiracy. sure they want him to be, but they made him the nominee. Well, that's the conspiracy theory that we've just explored, yeah. says that they, they, they propelled him into winning the primary and being the candidate that they think Biden can knock over. Well, I think they did propel him into being the candidate. I don't think they did that deliberately. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a bit of a stretch too. But, I, you know, I, although I would conclude that if Nikki Halley or, to a lesser degree, RDS were up against Joe Biden, I think the result would be a, a fairly comprehensive victory for either one. Yes, and and that's certainly what the polling is telling us too. And, um, and, and I'm sure if they, I'm sure if they tested. Uh, any other Democrat against Donald Trump, they'd probably get a pretty good result. The reality is a clear majority of Americans don't want either of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that does play into the hands, and I know it's not on our notes for today, but it does play into the hands of the third-party candidate, Jack, and that's uh, a man with a very famous name, RFK Jr. But the with bloke the- with a bad voice. <laughs> it's not great, is it? And he's not much younger than, not much younger than uh, Biden or Trump. Um, but uh, he, he tends to sort of run this sort of "I am the youthful candidate." But when the primaries are underway, and he won't be subject to a primary, of course, because he's he's non-party aligned, or he says he is. Um, and and uh, 
uh, when these primaries are around, you just so I would I'm going to make uh, a big call that his polling, which is around about twenty five percent, with uh, with Trump and Biden making up the the other seventy five, um, his polling that will be the high point of it because America will be fixated on the primary contest, particularly around the GOP, where the primary contest for the Democrats is a sort of no brainer, and there'll, there'll essentially be nothing because Biden will be appointed unopposed at the DNC, where he might be tapped on the shoulder, as you suggest, but but there's no real primary contest, so. All of that, any sort of momentum that Robert, that Bobby Kennedy Jr. has has uh, has created, will dissipate or is dissipating right now. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, did you see Trump's um, um, uh, acceptance speech or, or or victory speech after the Iowa caucus, Jack? I did. It. He did this after he was elected in 2016. It was a magnanimous and generous speech. And I just wish we saw more of that. And what well, clearly what he's doing is that, look, unify behind me, saying that to Republican voters, registered Republicans, unify behind me. But I just wish we heard a lot more of the magnanimous side of uh, Donald Trump, Jack. Um, uh, you know, his speech in 2016 after he was elected president was uh, it, it, I, I thought, oh, God, this could go really, really badly here. You know, he could call for, you know, violence on the streets and Hillary Clinton be dragged out of her house and locked up and all this stuff. He was magnanimous. He 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 thanked uh, and uh, wished his opponent well and, um, and he did the same uh, after the Iowa caucus. Yeah, um one of the things you need, I think we need to remember about him is I think he, he, he owns a share of the Miss Universe contest and I think he owns a share of the, <laughs> the, the wrestling thing at once. I never start. want to see him in the swimsuit competition. Yeah, no, no, but I think he owned a share of the wrestling, wrestling organisation. Uh, he was once. certainly involved in it, yeah. And his yeah. good mate uh, was the WWE black. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think, I think he had a share of it. Um, and he's, uh, um, he is a carnival barker um, uh, in, 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 in real sense. He's a spruker. Hmm. Um, uh, but uh, that can make him a fairly good speaker when he wants to be. He's kind of funny. One of the things he said in the speech was, look, I know it was terribly cold um, uh, and a lot of you people, um, you know, you know might have risked your life um, uh, um, getting out to vote for me and some of you would have died, but at least you die happy. <laughs> well, he did suggest, <laughs> and it was a separate speech, but he did suggest get out there if you're dying uh, if you're dying, well, at least you'll have cast a vote for me, and yeah, uh, you know yeah. your death is, will not be all in vain. And yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. wow. Which, but then there's other times where he goes, you know, I hope there's, I hope there's a Wall Street crash this year rather than the year yeah. after, uh, and that America is headed for depression unless you vote for me and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I could handle a Trump presidency. If he supported NATO, if he came out and supported NATO uh, as president, as 47th president, supported NATO and supported Ukraine, I just don't think he will. As it stands, he comes up, comes up with this nonsense saying he'll knock the conflict over with a couple of phone calls. 
Yeah, well, he's a, he's a, he's a property developer from Queens. They, they think they can fix everything with a couple of telephone calls. Couple of phone calls, Look, yeah. um, At any event, you and I aren't going to vote for it, but it's going to be very interesting to watch. Oh, it's going to be hugely entertaining. Uh, it, it's very likely that, uh, just going back to Biden, that, that, that Joe Biden will do as he did during the pandemic. It was easily explained during the pandemic because, you know, a lot of the states was in lockdown. Uh, campaigning was very, very difficult. So he did campaign essentially from the basement in his Delaware home Um, and and it's likely he'll probably do something very similar again, perhaps not to the same degree and that he will have Michelle Obama, Barack Obama and some of the, uh, perhaps not the Clintons, but um, um, uh, some of the the, 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 the Democrat royalty do a lot of his campaigning for him. Yes. Um, I don't think it'll work quite so well without the COVID um, excuse. So he needs another pandemic, Jack, just to uh, keep him in the basement. All right. Um, Where do we go after New Hampshire, Jack? Um, uh, New Uh, Hampshire was always the first primary, but uh, Iowa have blitzed them with their their caucus. South South Carolina's next up um, on on the 3rd of February. And and Nikki Uh, Halley is a former governor there. Uh, You'd expect her to go pretty well. Yeah, that, that, I, I suspect South Carolina will probably be the end of the road for um, Ron DeSantis. Oh, yes. Well, of course, the Iowa caucus um, saw off absolute charlatan Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, had a go at Trump uh, on the day before the, the caucus. Um, uh, and while he's always been a sort of sycophant towards him uh, and uh, got Got a nice old slapdown on uh, from from Trump about it. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy was really a, conspir- a conspiracy theorist, uh, <laughs> dressed up as a candidate. Um, oddly, Jack um, Elon Musk predicted that Vivek Ramaswamy would go much better than the polling was uh, indicating, and of course he didn't. I- I'm starting to get the feeling Elon Musk he-, he might not be the genius I thought he was. <laughs> Oh, you just don't like African Americans. <laughs> that's uh, that's very cruel, uh, uh, but but and and definitely wrong. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm starting to think that he might, as a genius, he he might have a couple of blind spots because um, <laughs> Ramaswamy was just making up the numbers. Of course, Chris Christie, as you announced last week, had pulled out of the race. Um, I think uh, he would say, "Job done." Um, uh, uh, virulently anti-Trump. Of course, and uh, and gave Vivek Ramaswamy a nice old slap uh, as he left uh, as he left the um, uh, one of the televised debates uh, prior to the uh, Iowa would, caucus. Um, uh, in cricketing terms, we would call it a send off. Yeah, he gave him a, <laughs> did give him a send off, and it was just perfectly perfectly expressed uh, about how um, if Ramaswamy was in the unlikely event he was the president, uh, how he would deal with Ukraine, and that would be basically to count out of Putin. Um, it was a nice old spray, and I enjoyed it very, very much. Jack, as we speak, uh, as we record this, Australia uh, are in a bit of a battle, uh, a bit of a surprise battle against the West Indies in Adelaide. Um, it looked, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, that uh, the West Indies would be out for about 120, but along came Shamar Joseph, belted up a 36, uh, uh, and he and Kamar Roach 
put on uh, 50 odd for the for the last wicket. They they battled to 188. Showed a lot of fight, which was really really good. 36 Took a couple of wickets last night. Second top scorer batting at number 11. Well, he's just popped up and taken uh, three wickets uh, in the Australian innings, Jack, as well. well so he's had a um, ripping. Uh, ripping debut. Has, has anybody had a better first day's test cricket than to be second top scorer batting at number 11 and then coming out with your very first ball as a bowler yeah. and you knock over the world's number one batsman? Yeah. First ball. Yes. Uh, look, the, the issue with the West Indies, look, fantastic. Very, very pleased for them that, that they are showing uh, a lot of pluck. But have a look at this, Jack. Uh, you've got... Your numbers three, four, five, and six: uh, Kirk McKenzie, Alec uh, Athanasi, uh, Kavim Hodge, and Justin Greaves. They've played six tests between them, Jack. I think it's seven yeah. actually. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think Kirk. I think McKenzie's played one or before 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 the Adelaide Test. He got fifty yesterday. Batted really well. Um, but yeah, that that uh, top to middle order. It's just not a lot of experience there. Yeah, and you can get away with that in T20 sometimes and with and, and, and in one-day internationals. But test cricket is is a real test um, and it tests your depth and your and your capacities and they probably lack that. Um, Shamar Joseph, we didn't actually use his name, but that's his name. Sham- um, yeah, no, Shamar Joseph, I mentioned yeah, him. Yeah, two, he's, two years he's ago, he was 36. He's, he's from a very poor part of Guyana uh, uh, and two years ago he moved to the biggest town in the area because... The alternative was to spend his, um, uh, spend his time um, uh, logging forest uh, for not much money, and uh, Kirtley Ambrose found him at a clinic in um, uh, in this town two years ago. Yeah, um, so well he's done, you know, gone from two years uh, from from there to uh, being a, a pretty good Test cricketer already. Um, the, the ICC have got to do something about. Um, uh, Keeping Test cricket alive in yeah. the Tier Two Test nations, uh, and that's partly on. You know, they, they've got to be paid better. The players that's have got right. to be guaranteed some money. So, so the West Indies, if they pick their best eleven, would be a, be a pretty handy side. The the issue is um, that many of those players are going to play for in the Caribbean Premier League. Um, or they're going to play their cricket elsewhere because they're just not remunerated enough. And, th- and this is the case with Pakistan, with Bangladesh, um, yeah. as you say, those second-tier nations. And what needs to happen is um, the ICC bring in minimum contracts uh, that, uh, that, that, that have, a great, have a greater value. Now, if you look at the West Indies 11 there, I guarantee you their highest paid contract contracted player, which is probably Braithwaite, uh, would be earning less than the lowest uh, contract in Australia. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and the ICC are going to have to pony up the money for this out of the TV rights. Now, Australia, Jack. Meanwhile, six for one hundred and sixty-eight. I guess we're just at lunch or just coming back from lunch. Well, no, I'm perhaps still at lunch. I'm just forgetting the uh, South Australian difference in time zone. Stephen Smith out for 12 opening in his first uh, first uh, hit out as opener, batting at one. Uh, Marnus got out to uh, a uh, uh, sort of top edge hook shot. Cameron Green hit a couple of boundaries and then then got nicked out. <laughs> and, um, <coughs> and, uh, and Travis Head's 56 not out. 
Um, in fact, uh, it looks like they went to lunch with uh, Alex Carey being dismissed. So they're six for 168. And I'll tell you, if, you know, as, a, as an old cricket salt, I'll tell you the, the, the lesson in this is do not mess with your batting order. Hmm. And that the positions one to six are specialised positions. Even the difference between Travis Head at five and Mitchell Marsh at six, they're both very comfortable there, by the way, and they're staying there. But Mitchell Marsh as a six would would uh, would be more used to batting with the tail or should be that should be one of his assets, batting with the tail. Stephen Smith going from four to one, I'm still concerned about it. I, I, I think an opener should have been picked. Um, to replace Dave Warner, um, and I think Cameron Bancroft would consider or should consider himself hard done by. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm not convinced. I know you and I have had uh, uh, WhatsApps exchanges about this. I'm not convinced that Cameron Green is a number four at this stage in his career. I know he bats there for WA, but when he first came to WA or first played for WA, he was batting at seven. Um, so I'm not convinced about that. Um, look, I'd, I'd play Cameron Green, bat him somewhere, just to, just to have him in the gully. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced that they've got this right at this stage. And, and they are playing a fairly lowly nation. Um, I see uh, uh, they are have resumed play and, uh, and Travis Head is... Uh, uh, is now on 60, not out. So um, they will take a first innings lead, um, but uh, not all that uh, comfortable uh, a journey for them. I think it was pretty – I think it was definitely harder to bat there than it seems to be today, and I have looked a bit of it this morning. Um, some of the balls keeping low, um, uh, but uh, by day two, this this Adelaide wicket should have been an absolute batsman's paradise, and and it's it, it, you know it's not showing up that way in the score so far, Jack. No, um, a bit to play yet. Oh, yeah, a fair bit to play. Uh, you know, I, I'm not doing this from a, a point of view of you know just sticking boldly to uh, or, 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 or timidly to to tradition, but it is. It is a strange – it is one of those things. You mess with your batting order really at your own peril. Um, <clears throat> and it, it very rarely works out. It's one of those baseball-y things, you know, anyone can bat anywhere and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's absolute rubbish. You know, if you're, if you're a skilled opener – well, Steve Smith has opened at short-form cricket, but to open a test level, I just think it might be asking a bit much of him at this particular – juncture in his career because his, his hands and eyes will be slowing um, as he moves further and further in a sort of 35 years of age critical period. The, um, uh, it's a great story in, in the paper last week, I can't think of who it was, who was talking to Graham Gooch on Gooch's last tour um, to Australia and Gooch was saying, gee, Paul Rifle's gotten a lot quicker. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no. Well, I, I, I actually spoke to Pistol about this uh, at a at a party we were both at um, uh, a couple of years ago now, and I said, "Mate, can you mind if I take your photo? I've got I've got a photo of me and DK Lilly. I've got my fast bowling album." You know, I've got a photo of me and Jeff Thompson. And I said, you'll be number three. And he goes, mate, I do not belong. <laughs> I do not belong with either of those two. But he allowed himself to be photographed all the same. Uh, yes, uh, very, 
hit the hit, would have hit the bat hard in his day. Pistol, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, obviously Gucci was just finding him a little bit harder to pick up. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you look at what the English did with with Joe Root. Remember, they shifted him to three, and it just did, you, you would you would think shifting from four to three would make a big difference, but uh, it, it did. Yeah, because uh, when you're batting three, you know, you can come in at one for a hundred, or you can come in at one for none, and, and and if you come in at one for none, you might as well be opening. Hmm. Um, and 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 that requires you know discipline and technique. One thing, As I one say, thing, just to wrap it up, me. I just think we're we're going to miss Dave Warner. We, we we haven't seen just just yet how much. But by oh, gee, you know, look look, they've, they've scored one hundred and seventy two or fifty six overs. The um, one of the things you mentioned was you thought that Cam Cam Bancroft was a bit stiff. Hmm. Um, I did notice that they interviewed Pat Cummings about this, and he said that oh, he had a conversation with um, with Bancroft and Harris, and who um, was the other fellow who was in line for it? Um, can't think. Um, and this is a bit odd to me. It used to be that the selectors looked after picking the team and then gave the team to the captain and says, "You do it." But that seems to have gone now. It seems now that Pat Patrick's at the um, at the selection table. Uh I'm not sure that he is, but I would think he'd be getting the side um, a bit before the media gets it, put it that way. Um, and, look, he, he would have understood. You know, this is the call to Bancroft to say everything's sweet, mate, everything's good between us. Um, <coughs> over the, you know, the, the Newlands um, uh, sandpaper gate. Uh, and, um, uh, look, I mean, obviously Cummins would have understood that, that Bancroft was in the mix. But I think yeah. it's a it, it's a good thing it's a good thing that he did it, um, but it was an odd selection, um, a, a, a very odd selection to try and create an opener where you don't really have one. Uh, and there's a good argument to be made that Usman um, prefers to bat down the order a bit too, so he's a little bit of a makeshift opener too, and certainly State, Stephen Smith is. I'm not trying to run down the West Indies, but imagine, imagine you know that batting lineup as it stands against Boomerang and Shami. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, there's another sport on Jack besides cricket. I didn't know there was any other sport you played in summer, but apparently so, and that is the tennis, the Australian Open. Um, a bit of a kerfuffle there. I forget who the Australian tennis player was who had a bit of a moan about um, uh, uh, spectators being able to move at the end of every game, Jack. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> Mate, who pays your wages? <laughs> well, it's yeah. not quite like that, but, I mean, come on. It's it's There's always been a difference between cricket and tennis, isn't there? The tennis spectators are expected to sit there in silence and behave themselves. Uh, the cricket fans, not so much. Well, they don't though. <laughs> they don't. They get a bit. They get a bit messy. I think I, I would say they get a bit messy. But they get messier at the tennis than they than they do. Uh, they do at Bay at Bay Thirteen. They do. Um, look, one thing I'd say about the Australian Open is what a huge success it is. Um, if you go back to the the last of the Kuyong years, the it was in danger of losing its Grand Slam status and. Um, John Kane um, and building what was then called Flinders Park, 
Um, I can remember watching the first final. It was um, Mats Valander and Pat Cash. Uh, Valander won in five sets. It's 1988 um, and um, Flinders Park and the Australian Open have never looked back since. Had three rebuilds in that time. It gets better and better every year. Huge boost for Melbourne. Um, it's one of, one of the great sports success stories. Well, one of the Grand Slam tournaments, of course. I mean, look, the, the tennis centre there um, is just part of that enormous sporting complex that I think pretty much begins uh, at the tennis centre or it might begin with the, uh, the, the Melbourne Storm ground, uh, that sort of 50, 50 or 40,000 seat stadium and ends at the MCG with 102,000 capacity. It just tells you how uh, what a sporting city Melbourne is to have that enormous precinct devoted to sport uh, all on the banks of the Yarra there. But you've got to run it well and the Australian Open's tremendously well run um, has been for a long time. So, Who's your tip to win it? Djokovic? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Takes a bleeding, won't he? I, I was following it a bit last night and uh, uh, I think the it was a Aussie guy who got a set off him. Um, uh, and um, I was on Twitter and uh, uh, an Aussie journo said, um, uh, how long is it going to take before we need a medical break for Djokovic and, uh, and the physio comes out? And it was someone came back and said, that was 17 seconds after you were called. <laughs> Slip an mRNA vaccine into him when he's not looking, Jack. Yeah. Uh, what about the Magic Millions? What have we got going on there? This is the that's, just that's for listeners, not, story. not across the horse racing. This is this is uh, basically uh, Southern Queensland, the Gold Coast. Um, that's their Melbourne Cup, Jack. Well, it's another sporting success story. They built this out of nothing. It's built around um, a sale of yearlings um, and and uh, a race day. Um, and you think that's not that's not a really strong foundation, but it gets be- it, it gets better and better every year as well. Mm, uh, they are both examples. If you run sport, if you run sporting events well, they succeed. Um, in uh, in AFL, Jack, we're going through a bit of a lull in the uh, uh, in the sort of I guess we are in a preseason now. In fact, I know they are. Um, uh, and uh, Melbourne, uh, the Melbourne Footy Club, um, uh, will be missing one of its players, the son of Sean Smith. I think it's Josh, isn't it, Josh Smith? Uh, Sean Smith. Uh, Sean Smith's son, Joel. 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 I said Josh. Sorry, I do apologise. It looks like under the um, AFL's uh, uh, recreational drug policy, uh, he will miss two seasons. Um, and as I understand that. Uh, policy, it is kind of a three strikes policy, and he's at that third strike level. So, the first time uh, the club has not known, I think the first two times uh, he tests positive for a recreational drug. Um, uh, the club, he's notified, but the club is not. Um, and, uh, and, and then there's a, you know, counselling provided and support provided and so forth. But the club, I always thought that very odd that the club was not, not uh, told. And then when you get to that third strike, um, you are looking at a suspension and that's what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm troubled by the idea that a sport like AFL would be testing people for recreational drugs um, Except and, to and say there's a fine line, isn't there? There's a fine line between the use of amphetamines, 
and cocaine, uh, as the, you, you, you might sort of say that that could enhance your ability to train. Uh, certainly uh, some players in the past, my knowledge, were taking amphetamines while they were training, train the, train the house down and and uh, come, come off uh, vomiting and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's the problem. That's the only problem I've got with this because you could easily ask, you could easily conclude that various amphetamines, crystal meth, uh, the old, the old, the old trucker speed in the old days, and cocaine, and not just recreational drugs, um, uh, they can be used to uh, enhance performance. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. Um, but seriously, if a uh, an AFL player goes out after a game and has a bit of Charlie at a nightclub, um, I've got no problem with that. No, I certainly don't either. And, and you would have to say that it's just a reflection of our society and probably um, uh, it, it occurs less than it would within the general public of you know men uh, of, of between the age of 18 and 35. Certainly uh, less than in the financial services industry. <laughs> One or two lawyers might be included in there, Jack, yeah, yeah, offering yeah. bloody advice after having a line or two. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so it, it, it does seem to be a bit of a problem for me. I think it's a bit of an ethical problem. I, th- I think the policy's a bit shameful in that the clubs are the last to know. Yeah, yeah. And no, you'd I, also I, say, excuse me, um, Joel Smith, you've been pinched twice. You think you, you, know, you might knock it over. Cocaine sits in the blood system for not very long, and they're not doing hair tests, so they're doing urine tests, and it's out of the urine within my understanding is tops forty eight hours. Yeah. Um, so you get pinched a couple of times. You might think, well, perhaps I should, uh, perhaps I should uh, just have a beer instead. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, it troubles me that 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 that, that the AFL. Um, uh, are punishing people for something that's fairly common in the community and, and, and isn't performance enhancing, or, or they ought to have to establish that it's performance enhancing. Yeah, fair point. Um, and I, I, I would also add that I, I've written on this. I mean, I think cocaine should be legalised um, just to get the bloody price down and stop people being shot in the streets over, uh, you know, tr- drug traffickers' uh, turf wars. Um, all right. Well, that takes us out for the rest for, for, for this episode, our second episode of the year. Uh, I'm off to go and watch the cricket, but Jack has got one thing to add before he goes. Uh, just before we go, um, something has happened in, um, in, in, at the Australian Open in the tennis. We have had the return of the short shorts for men. Oh, really? Now, you haven't been watching this, that, but, uh, and does that bother you, Jack, or is it, well, is it, no, does no, it add no, to your excitement? Uh, no, the uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Johnny McEnroe and Jim Courier uh, were discussing this on air, and and Courier said it was Pete Sampras who turned up at a tournament in the long shorts one day and saved everyone's dignity. <laughs> and He's I got a tall fellow, yeah, John McEnroe. Yeah. By the way, there's no better. Um, tennis commentator in the world than, than uh, the great John McEnroe is there. 
No, he's terrific. And Jim Curry is very good as well. Jim Curry was a very boring tennis player to he watch, but he's quite yeah. engaged and lively as a commentator. Sort of American Ivan Lendl, wasn't he? He was, um, he was, yeah. Anyway, while we're on the subject, just a short shorts, it took me back to my late father um, uh, and the Warwick Kappa days. Remember Warwick? Um, oh, uh, Warwick he, had the shorter shorts. Yeah, he did. And, uh, and, and, and my late father used to say that uh, uh, they're like the Makatar Town Hall. There's no ballroom. <laughs> That's very good. Can I just leave you with my favourite Warwick Kappa story? Uh, they were doing a pictorial promo for some reason well after his retirement. He, of course, married a, uh, oh, I think a model of some description, Jack, and uh, I can't remember her name, but they did do a pictorial in Penthouse, the pair of them, a very raunchy thing. Um, but as this uh, interviewer journalist came through his house, he was showed showed off the apartment. It was like he lived in the Goldie at the time, uh, and he said, and, and he walked in and, and walked into the bedroom and just slapped the bed, did Warwick, and just said, "This is the tour room, mate." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not shy at all. <laughs> <laughs> very, very funny bloke. There's a great photo of him, Jeffrey Edelston, and um, and uh, what's his name, Nixon, um, um, uh, the uh, the former uh, former manager. And he just thought there's, there's probably there's, there's quite there's been quite a few convictions and <laughs> about four brain cells between the three of them. Yeah. All righty, that takes us out. Um, we uh, we want to thank you for listening and also encourage you to get in touch if you wish to. Um, drop us a line uh, on my Twitter DMs are always open on at Jack the Insider and you can get hold of Hong Kong Jack on the Substack. Give it to yeah, us, Jack. Hong, hongkongjack.substack.com. Thank you very much and we'll see you next week. See you, listeners. Bye. <laughs>